Hey, everybody. Hello, and welcome to Small Fortune, a podcast about the business of wine. Today, we're interviewing Tim Allen. He's the principal owner and founder of Allen Wine Group. He is an advisor as a, to the wine business. He runs a outsourced CFO company specializing in the wine business. And uh, we have a great little conversation. Tim is, in addition to being you know, quite funny and charming, uh, is also quite brilliant and shows in this conversation a very deep understanding of what it takes to be successful in the wine business, as well as uh, a breadth of knowledge and experience and some great stories. So we also talk a bit about his own company, because the program, our little podcast, is both about the wine business, but also about entrepreneurship. And Tim is an entrepreneur. He founded this firm and has grown it and it's quite successful. So we talk a bit about his business as well. That's kind of where we start out. I do have to apologize to my listeners uh, and to Jacqueline, who is my producer and tries her very best to uh, help me not uh, have technical challenges. But I did have some technical challenges on this one. This was actually the second interview we recorded. and. I hadn't quite figured it out. Hopefully by the third recording, I'll have figured it out. But in this instance, uh, the sound quality on my end is not great at all. But I think uh, our engineers cleaned it up enough that uh, we can present this to you. But uh, most of the time, Tim's doing the talking and he is as clear as a bell and frankly has a voice for radio, as you will find out. And so um, coming up is uh, an interview with Tim Allen by Carol Collison, who sounds a great deal like the teachers in a Peanuts cartoon. Wah, wah, wah. But yeah, hopefully you can make me out a little bit. And uh, Tim sounds great. So a lot of insights. Please enjoy. Well, uh, hello, everybody. Listeners or listener or listeners, we're very happy to have uh, my friend Tim Allen joining us today. Tim is the uh, principal and founder of the Allen Wine Group. So we'll start off, I think, a little bit by just talking about you know what he does for the wine industry and other industries, I believe, and then you know maybe talk a little bit about tips and tricks as it relates to accounting or or general business matters in the wine business. So Tim and I were originally. I think Tim did, you know, you and I, Mark Brody and Jeff Butch used to like get cocktails every once in a while and uh, would talk about, I think that you were the one who was like, we should do a panel at Unified, right? I think it goes back about 15 or 20 years. I think you're right. <laughs> it goes back a long time. And then a couple of years ago, I'm like, well, wait a minute, maybe in fact we should do a podcast. And Mark was super into it. And then unfortunately he uh, had to, Exit stage left, and if he's listening, we'll say hi, Mark. Hey, Mark. Hope you're listening. Yeah. Jeff, of course, was a Moss Adams guy. It was immediately like, I'm going to do the podcast. And then you were, you've been too busy. So, but you're not too busy to do this one. So I'm happy, happy you joined us. And, not um, for you, anytime. Uh, uh, I, I'm trying to think when did, when did we meet? I think you were at Rosenblum. 
I think that's correct. You were uh, you were uh, banking at the time, and we were talking to you about moving our banking. That I was I was at Rosenblum for four years before we sold to Diageo. So moving our banking wasn't our wasn't wasn't number one on our minds. Uh, yeah, and that was a, a very well known deal. You you and uh, the Saponi Group uh, negotiated quite a good deal for actually. <laughs> actually, it was uh, Demeter Group. It was uh, Matt Franklin working with Jeff Manashi. Okay. I know it's it's funny when you think of Matt Franklin today, you'd think of Zaponi Group. Yeah, but that's why I thought it was Zaponi for sure. Yeah, but I or I feel badly for Matt Franklin. I must have spent six months talking to him for an hour a night during that transaction. God, he saved me. He kept me off the ledge so many times. That is one of the major roles of an M and A advisor is uh, keeping the client on track because these are very broad processes um, so good job matt um, one, one of my favorite things i gotta tell you one of the th favorite things matt said to me after that was hey tim i got something for you i got a new gig it's just like rosenblum i said no <laughs> don't you remember what we just went through <laughs> give me a job at the post office but <laughs> But you did go to a winery after that, did you not? I did. I went to Coletto Estate, and uh, it was during 0809. We did as much as we could in that time, and uh, Bill Foley uh, purchased the property. I'm a big fan of of the Foley organization. I remember this anecdote. Sorry for all the stories. I remember one six years after the purchase, uh, I saw Bill Foley at the CIA for a wine event. I told my wife, "Watch this. He's gonna have no idea." Who I am, and I walked up to Bill. I said, "Hey, Bill, how are you doing?" He goes, "Hey, Tim, what's going on?" And uh, I'm like, "Oh, okay, great." He's got a better memory than I do. You're famous, Tim. Famous. <laughs> I don't. I don't know about that. No, we were. Uh, it was. It was a very brief. No one. No one buys a winery, uh, looking at the asset list and saying, "I really want to keep all these highly paid officers." That's why I'm getting this. Well, that's, forget about the brand and the wine. It's it's these. It's these the VPs that I want. Yes. And then you decided to start Allen Weinberg, yeah? Yeah. So you and I were talking earlier. That's a funny story. So it's March 09. No one's hiring. My wife says, why don't you go to a CPA firm and they'll give you a job? And I said, well, all right, let me try that. So I walked into a couple of friends CPA firms and they said, yeah, sure. We'd like to hire you. And I, I said, all right, but I, I need a million dollar signing bonus. And the, the partner said, well, no. And I, then I came back to my wife and I said, well, no one will hire me. I better start this business. So <laughs> started with one client out of my bedroom. Yeah. In 09. And today we are about 45 clients and 32 people. And uh, it's been going very well. No, I mean, it's, you are an entrepreneur. So, I mean, in addition to being a, a podcast about the wine business per se, it's also about entrepreneurship. So, um, you know, the fact that you made this choice to start your own business rather than, uh, um, you know, taking a, a fat salary um, is unique. I mean, especially for folks in, in your, your line of work. Um, it's it's interesting. It started off 
as an accounting, outsourced accounting, when not many people were doing that. Today, with labor from the Philippines, South Africa, India, everybody's doing it. So it's not a, it's no longer a new idea. So the competition is a lot more fierce. And so our practices evolved from offering accounting to trying to offer more CFO level services. So advisory, banking, strategy, insurance, uh, help with sales. So we're just, I just think back to when I was, I was a CFO or president at a winery and I think to myself, what do I wish someone would have brought to me as a as an answer a solution and we try to do those things very useful so what is the size i mean what kind of what is the range and i i know for my own self that there's no kind of cook the wine industry is not a cook together thing um so you know i i will say you know i tend to work on plus or minus 20 million dollar deals although i will be much smaller and much larger but the range of what a 20 million dollar value business in the wine business could, you know, could be a, a 6,000 case estate to a 100,000 case, you know, wholesale brand only deal. I mean, there's sort of no rhyme or reason to the industry. There's just tons of business models. But, you know, what is sort of a typical client in this look like? Let's say a typical winery is about 10,000 cases, family owned. For a lot of our clients, we are the entire finance department. We're everything from bookkeeping through CFO. There's not a uh, finance or admin person on the payroll. And for other clients, we just come in every once in a while for advice or to forecast. So our wineries range from a thousand cases to we've worked with 500, 5 million case wineries, 500,000 case wineries, uh, just, you know, supplementing. Maybe we work, we, we participate in cost accounting. Maybe we work, we participate in the budgeting. Um, but for those, you know, sometimes maybe somebody's on maternity leave or they're looking for the someone quit and uh, they're on they're doing a search and we fill in in the in the interim. Oh, well, that's a helpful service for sure. And so when is when typically does somebody leave? I mean, is there a particular volume or deal structure or volume or organizational structure or size or situation where they tend to go to hiring their own staff? A lot, a lot of times it is just that it is size. We, it, when you are five, 10, 15,000 cases, you don't want to pay a six figure CFO full time. It's just not necessary. A lot of the work can be done in more like four to five hours a week. But if you are, you know, if you're in the, you know, 50 million, 100 million revenue range and you're in the couple hundred thousand cases, the ownership will want a CFO on speed dial. They they want them sitting right next to them, quest, being able to ask questions anytime, and it's just a it's a different a, a different idea. And we're happy when that happens. We are happy to we train, we help search, we help get that person in position and set them up to succeed, because it's it's all about the right fit. You've got to it, if it's the wrong fit, it's not going to work for either one of you. Neither one of you are going to be happy. So. If, when a client gets so big that that it, they they need a full time we are employee we are only happy to help. And you know, grown spectacularly. I know for, from our cocktail conversations that the biggest challenge. I mean, I want us to talk about the you know what you see challenges or mistakes made in the wine business, but from your perspective of seeing so many of it, so many of them, and so many being involved with so many 
But before we get to that, I just think we ought to do a shout out for your own particular industries challenge, which is at least last week, the time we had a conversation was attracting and keeping um, top talent. Is that still where we got? Back in the 1990s, 200,000 people sat for the CPA exam. Last year, 75,000 people sat for the exam. So the number of accountants is dropping. The number of CPAs is dropping. And yeah, we we in the industry we know we have we have not made the profession look very attractive, right? It's green eye shades. It's working seven days and uh, overtime and never seeing your kids, and that's what it that's what we made it look like. Today it's different. the 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 pressure from uh, the younger generations has made you know you you have to offer some work from home. You can't you can't work everybody seventy hours, so it's. Uh, that's kind of refreshing. The the industry is being changed from the, from the the newer uh, professionals, but still there are even there are fewer accounting professionals. I wish I wish we had more. That is actually a, an amazing statistic, and it seems like an effort to move that needle. But I don't know who's going to do it. I will say that, I, that myself, personally, it doesn't happen very often. But if I'm ever in a position, I meet some young kid in college who hasn't settled on a on a major. I swear to God, I always saw him accounting. And oh, yeah, yep. It, it, I said, "Look, you can. You, first of all, right out of the gate, you're going to get a job, okay? Uh, versus your friend who studied art history, and then you know you you get into a firm, you get to see, you know, maybe it's your bag, and you love it. But if you don't, you get you know kind of bird's eye view at a, a bunch of different industries." Which, you know, then you can move out of accounting and into, you know, operating, you know, in an industry that interests you. So I uh, I do my part, but so far everybody I've talked to said, no. Oh, thank you. But it's not it's not the kind of thing you drop at cocktail parties, right? You don't say, Hey, I'm a I'm a CPA and I do taxes in Q one. So it's <laughs> you know, it's just it's not all that sexy to be talking about, but it is it is great work. It is always needed. And yep. uh, and it's 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 always every day is different. It's it's not math. It's people. Yeah, entirely. I mean, at the end of the day, all businesses, right? So let's uh, let let's get some of your wisdom, Tim. Um, <laughs> what are some of the biggest mistakes that you've seen made uh, or recur or whatever? What 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 do you want to share with people who may be listening who want to own or do own the way? You bet. I can. I can do this. So, in my opinion, the biggest mistake is not having enough capital, not being funded well enough. You yeah. can do anything you want if you have enough funding. So, all the other mistakes are secondary to. If you walk into the industry with a few hundred million dollars, sure, there's a lot you can do. So, the the risk is that you you have someone put together a seven or ten year business plan uh, for ABC Winery selling Cabernet at a hundred dollars a bottle. And you know, all the, it all pencils out, looks good, and you you finance to that level, it it'll never work that way. So um, having an, enough financing, basically, take take whatever that report says and multiply it by ten. Uh, that's the the biggest mistake. Second biggest oversupply, producing too much. You've got to sell the wine first, and then source it. So sales. That's, that's took me a little bit to figure out from finance, but sales trumps all else. If you're not selling wine, your job as an accountant is is 30 times as hard. So 
it, it it's so difficult, right? Because you're you're making commitments for wine in year one that you won't sell till year year four. So right. uh, you, you might be bullish. You might think that uh, you know. I had a client walk in one time and and he said, "I'm hey, I'm going to start a winery." And I said, oh, "I'd be more surprised if you said you weren't." And then he said, "I'm going to uh, I'm going to start with five thousand cases of Chardonnay." And I said, "No, you're not. Oh, you're fifty is what." And he he said, well, that's funny you say that. My attorney said the same thing. But I have friends in Minnesota. And I said, oh, you, no one has that many friends. And uh, regrettably, that venture didn't work. Um, it, he wound up with an oversupply. And if you're an oversupply and you start discounting, then your $100 bottle is no longer a $100 bottle. It's a $60 bottle because that's what people can pay for it. So you, the brand erosion is is huge. So those two not enough funding, financing, and uh, an oversupply are the are the two biggest, in my opinion. Well, uh, strangely or not, uh, actually, that, that we, we talked to uh, our former colleague Vic Motto, now retired, the other day, and uh, he said the exact same thing. <laughs> I'll throw a third one out there. A third one is making wine that you you like or that makes sense to you. Forgetting about the consumer. So today's consumer is not the 17% alcohol consumer from 15 years ago. There are bars in Manhattan that don't serve alcohol. So if I want to start a winery and I think to myself, well, it's got to be Burgundian. So that means I can only make Chardonnay and Pinot Noir and sparkling because I need to hold true. That You're not thinking about the, the person who's buying the wine. That just makes sense to you. So it, you know, make wines that have interest to people. It, you don't have to just make the same thing that the, the next guy's making. Um, the show uh, smaller batches. It's some interest to your wine club and tasting room. You know, Ken Rosenblum made seventy-two different wines. He made forty-five different Zinfandels, and he, he would always say, "If you didn't like one, he had one you would." So, and, and he was right. That's probably more skews than anyone needs. But he he made wines that people liked were interesting and people wanted to drink. He understood the consumer. Yeah. And was extremely successful. I mean, what is, have you seen, because actually that was also one of the things that they called us. So I, it's, it's fun that, you know, two interviews in, we're getting down to brass tech, setting aside the, you know, if you build it, they will come, you know, issue on the inventory side. How have you seen people successfully? Do you have any ideas about how, how people have succeeded in getting themselves out of that? Kind of ah, great question. If you're an oversupply, you know, the best uh, friends and family discounts are one of my favorite because you're only offering maybe 10 to 25% off full retail. So it's a great return. It just doesn't move as many cases as you'd like. There are services like Mulberry Trample that will that broker your wines. You, you you just don't want the price to be seen by wine searcher. It's the you don't want your hundred dollar bottle being advertised for nineteen ninety nine uh, on the web so that people can find it. So the trick is it's so uh, it, it's cruise lines, airlines, um, hotels, um, the Bevmo five cent sales, a great one. Uh, anything that you can do, any any deals you can make with your club or your mailing lists are great. But yeah, it, it's the the risk is that any any discounts you are, and DAs for buy the glass. Sorry, that's another one. I'm sorry, depletion allowances. So discounts 
when you when you order a twelve dollar glass of Chardonnay at your favorite restaurant, that means the restaurant paid twelve dollars for that bottle. They recover the full cost on the first pour. So that means if you are if you have a thirty dollar bottle of Chardonnay, you usually sell it California wholesale for twenty. Well, now you're selling it for twelve, but still, again, the price goes unnoticed because it's by the glass. So those are some of my favorite ways to move excess inventory. Oh, yeah, super smart. And what have you seen anybody, you know, really nail it in terms of in your experience um, as an advisor in, ter- in figuring out what the consumer wants? Is there some particular product story that, that comes to mind when you or process, you know, um, to figure out what the consumer wants? Have you seen anything particularly clever in that right? You know, it's funny. It's always retroactively, right? So, you know, first it was Yellowtail. Yellowtail gave people maybe not the wine they wanted, but the label they wanted. And what did we do as an industry? Critter brands came at every every animal that, that was on Noah's Ark had its own wine. <laughs> what I remember next in, in terms of that kind of success is The Prisoner. The Prisoner came out, a, a Grenache Syrah Mavedra blend. Then everybody was after their own, everyone went Rhone and uh, and tried to make their own GSM blend. So uh, Butter, uh, John Truchard, his success yeah. is unparalleled. He gave people, you know, that's a, a $20 bottle of Chardonnay that uh, that, ha- that uh, just a very full body and, and people with a flavor profile people like. So those are some of my favorites, but it is, it is funny when you look, when you walk into a store or Safeway or Trader Joe's, wherever you walk into, just think of it this way. Every bottle you see on the shelf, there are a hundred bottles that couldn't get to that shelf because of the gatekeepers, the buyers. So the, when you look at that, the, the choices that you have, there are thousands more choices behind them that just, they're, they're just too many. You, you could never... You, you could never be presented with all of them to make a, a reasonable choice. What does that mean? Nobody is begging to have another winery started. Nobody, there's no consumer out there going, boy, I wish there was a Chardonnay that fit my my flavor profile. They, they're, he's, they've got, they got 30 of them to choose from. So it is an industry that is oversaturated. So how do you succeed? How do you, how do you succeed in an industry that, that already doesn't want you? And that is, it's a puzzle. And uh, it's like the blackjack table. Uh, it's like getting free Heineken. They, they just step right up and uh, they give it your shot. And usually people leave financing the lights. You know, I was going to comment that, um, you know, some of the, I don't know all those success stories that you laid out, but uh, the kangaroo brand, I'm forgetting, uh, butter, prisoner. Do you think the people, I, I don't know the folks in Australia who started Hamilton, but um, you know, it's, I have a feeling nine times out of ten, it's like luck, and then just having being in a position to, you know, fully take advantage of the good fortune that you have put something forward that, for whatever inscrutable reason, the consumer has, you know, just fallen in love with and starts to take off. And then the discipline and the capability and the long term financing to to kind of grow with the consumer demand. But I do remember. Talking to uh, the CFO at a very large wine company, who basically said that they, you know, they don't put any money into you know, product development. They just 
they do a $10,000, yeah, 10,000 piece run, put it in, you know, come up with some new brand concept, product concept, 10,000 piece runs, stick it in uh, a re retailer of their choice because they have that kind of power. And, you know, it's that's how they figure out what the consumer wants. It's just, you know, guessing and then going with the one that works and if it doesn't work, you shoot it in the head. Um, have you seen any other ways of doing consumer uh, research? Well, it's funny you say that. I, my brother called me the other day from uh, a supermarket. He said, hey, I'm trying to pick a $15 Pinot Noir. I'm looking at Little Sister, Bridesmaid. I'm making these up now, you know, uh, Little Brother. Uh, five others. And I said, take your pick. It's all the same wine. So I don't know that a lot of people know this, but if your bottle of wine is under $25, it probably was not produced by that winery. It was purchased in bulk and uh, put into bottles and with their label put on it. So the, the large wineries, Kendall Jackson's, Gallows, they, you know, they spill more wine than most producers sell in a year. So when you're the wines you're talking about, yeah, they're mostly brand based, label based, and uh, and and let's uh, most. I think the most effective form of advertising is really just still word of mouth. What are your friends drinking? What did what did your friend bring to the party? And and did you because we, let's face it, we don't trust advertising or marketing anymore. I don't blame anyone. So, right. but if our friend liked it, yeah, I'm I'm willing to try that. But so, uh, yeah, I remember uh, I worked at Mondavi. I remember some of the new labels that came out pretty, pretty frequently. Uh, but it's, you know, authenticity is still what sells, at least at the, the higher end, the $40, $50, bottle level. It, and, and people can smell when it's not authentic. So to quote one of my favorite friends, Tony Glorioso, who uh, one of my favorite salespeople, a uh, rich guy buys winery is no longer a story. It is not, it doesn't sell. You can hire the best vineyard manager. You can hire the best winemaker and the most expensive barrels and hillside Napa cab, but it, it's not the same as, as the Mandavi family growing up in the industry and being the pioneers who, who made it happen. So if you're starting a winery, I beg you not to. Um, but if you had to, I would say try to make it as authentic and, and true to self and, and place that you can. Well, you've kind of just answered one of my, my last questions, which is, would you advise somebody to get into the wine business? But And you just simply don't. But <laughs> <laughs> you know, As long as you're selling shovels, it's okay. But <laughs> right. it's the, the barrier to entry is, and I, I know... <laughs> Uh, when, when I, I'll tell you another quick story. I had a guy from New York call me and he said, Hey, I, I want to be a president of a winery. I thought I'd, you know, have, maybe you could advise me. I said, Oh, that sounds good. You know, tell me about yourself. And he said, well, I'm a, I'm a fund manager. And, uh, I, so I understand economics and I've always liked wine. And so I thought, you know, I'd come out and, you know, manage a winery and run a business. I said, well, I'm glad you're on the phone. Because I have to tell you, I've always wanted to run a fund for a, a like a Goldman Sachs. You know, I I don't actually have the education for it, but I do know own a few shares of Microsoft. Uh, you you don't understand this industry. They're spin around. You have to take Series Seven. <laughs> oh, ha ha ha! I get it. What I wasn't trying to be that funny, but 
this industry seems people think it's a walk on and it's not the the people who have been trying and succeeding or even trying and failing have, have tried a lot of different things and and I know that you have you have been successful in your industry for a long time and it's so appealing but um I, I think that blackjack has a better return. Okay. Well, that's an authentic opinion from Tim Allen about like that. You should be very, very cautious. And, and you know, I mean, that's what we call this thing small fortune for a reason. Um, to, to just to, you know, educate everybody and pat ourselves on the back, those of us, I guess, who are successful for, um, I sometimes say to my clients, uh, when I see a profit loss statement and a positive bottom line, I always congratulate them, uh, for, Finding a way, uh, because it is, it is, it's, it's no joke. It's, it's difficult, but why, why, if you, if you were to encourage somebody to, to, (laughs) there has to be, there has to be an authentic angle. There has to be some, what is different about your wine, your wine making, your approach, your, your message. Um, one of my favorite winemakers is a woman named Nova Kadamentri, and she is, um, she makes she was making wine from Mandavi and then the Finger Lakes, and now she's with her own brand. Very you know, that is authentic. She has, you know, her whole career in life has been dedicated to fine wine production. Um, but yeah, it's, if you have, you know, if if you have a something that is truly different, maybe you have an estate that has uh, that has a, a vineyard that has soiled that is different from everyone else. Or your your message is somehow you have to be able to tell the distributor or your consumer why your wine is special, why it's different, and why it's worth the price. Perfect. Well, I think that is amazing advice. And as that everything you've had to say is very congruent with what I I have experienced or seen, and uh, and I really appreciate you taking the time for one of our first podcasts and. We'll definitely have you back because magically you can actually make um, being a CPA sound kind of fun and interesting. Come on. <laughs> if you're an accountant, please call me. All right, Tim. Thank well, you very much, Carol. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Bye. Hi, Small Fortune listeners. If you have any questions or ideas for Carol, Email us at smallfortunepodcast at gmail.com. And we'd really love it if you could follow us on your favorite podcast platform and like, review, or share the show. Please join us next time. Thanks. Jacqueline, what do you think? I thought it was really good. I think it could have gone on a little longer. Yeah, leave them wanting more. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I thought it was good. I thought it was really interesting. I it makes you want to start a winery, doesn't it? Good, no, not really. <laughs> <laughs> Slightly cautionary tale there, but good. It was a good conversation. Thanks oh, for boy. joining us. Boy, you know what? I, I tell you, it's my favorite thing to do to New York people who call me to say they want to run a winery. Oh my god, I, I I must have done it ten times. It's so much fun. It is a fantastic way to help them understand what they're saying. Oh yeah! Hey, sounds good. I haven't never done it before, but I really like. Sounds like fun. Uh, 
I love food, but I don't think I could run a restaurant. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 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 uh, I, I mean, it's always, Carol, must, you must have heard it. I, I don't, I've never worked in wine, but I'm passionate about wine. <laughs> I've, I've really got bit by the wine bug. Oh, there's an awful lot of passion out there, apparently. Oh, God. Yeah. You, you take your passion to the bank. Try that. <laughs> 